Okay, uh, we are going to finish up uh, chapter 4 of the book of Acts. And so our text today uh, is Acts 4, verses 32 to 37. And if you're looking in the Pew Bible, you should find that, I think, on page 912. And if you need a Bible, um, I'm authorized to say, go ahead and take it. And take that one home. Uh, that would be yours. Um, uh, joyfully, we give that to you. So, if you join me, uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 32-37. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So I think for us to have a, a little clearer picture of what the early church looked like, the church that's described in the book of Acts that we've been looking at, we have to take a look at the demographics of that early church. And as I look out here this morning, I see all sorts of people. I see young, I see not so young. I I see, most importantly, for what we're looking at today, I see people that maybe have only been a Christian for a short period of time, maybe only months. We also see Christians that have been Christians, been followers of Jesus for several years. We also have people here who have followed and loved Jesus for several decades. And so that's a great thing. And and that would be typical of a church, you would say, in, in the United States or even across the world. You know, that would be a typical cross-section of a church. However, the church that we are looking at is completely and entirely unique. And I believe, well, I don't believe it ever can be replicated again. Uh, Consider that the church that we are looking at consisted of several thousand people who had come to faith in Jesus only within the last couple months. They were brand new to the faith. Consider that the leadership of that church, they themselves had only been believers in Jesus for three years or less. And you see a completely different picture than what a church today might look like. You know, we look at, for example, Pastor Brennan. You know, he was saved as a teenager and went to school, completed his education by the time of his early 20s, and now that's probably close to 20 years ago, right? Something like that. And Pastor Woody uh, was saved as a teenager and completed his education a number of years ago. In fact, all you need to know is that the school that Pastor Woody graduated from has changed names two times since he left. So it's, it's, been, it's been a while. That's okay. 
things. But the point we're trying to make is, is that, you know, the leadership in our churches today have been believers for a long time. The rank-and-file member of our church has been, you know, if you take a cross-section average, it's been for a number of years. The church of the church of Acts was an infant church. It was so young. Now, it doesn't mean that the people in this church were not religious. Nearly all of these people had grown up in the Jewish faith and were completely knowledgeable of all it taught. And they all desired to be pleasing to God, but the path that they'd been shown as a way to gain God's favor was so misguided. You know, all we need to know about the church of Acts at this time that was preceded by the following of the Jewish faith at that time, let me rephrase that, that's confusing for everybody, including me, that the Jewish faith at that time, the people that were most influential in its leadership were lawyers. And that's really all that needs to be said. You know, and if you, if you look at, if you look at our country today and you see what lawyers have done to our Constitution, how they misinterpreted it, misapplied it, distorted it in so many ways over the last 50 years, you get an idea of what these attorneys had done to the Word of God and God's law. And so the poor Jewish people, in an attempt to please God, were told that they had to jump through all kinds of hoops. And many of those were not prescribed in God's Word, but they were, you know, better ideas that men had. And so they came from that. And this group of young believers, when they came to faith in Jesus, when they were born again, they were amazed. They were amazed. And all of a sudden, their eyes were opened. And they saw what the real message and how to really please God, and that was not through what they had done, but what Jesus had done for them. And if they were going to find God's favor, it wouldn't be what they had done, it would be in spite of what they'd done. And through, through belief in Jesus, they would fulfill the work that Jesus himself said they must do to follow him. And that was in John 6, 29. He says, you know, to believe in him who he has sent. The work to please God was mainly, was, was merely believing that Jesus was who he said he was. He was the Messiah. He was the Redeemer. He was one that would bring redemption to the people. And that was the only work they had to do, was to believe it. And receive that truth. And so these thousands of people, these new believers and leaders that were himself new, came from a very different time. Uh, they had their whole lives turned around 180 degrees. They were born again, and that meant not only that they had a spiritual birth where they had been dead spiritually, but it changed their perspective on every single part of their life. And this young church had witnessed amazing things. People being healed miraculously. Uh, people's lives being transformed. People, those that had been 
a part of the entourage that believed and followed Jesus earlier on in their life, on, earlier on in his ministry, saw people raised from the dead. That's pretty amazing. Don't see that happen a lot. And so these people had all kinds of encouraging thoughts. They were electrified. They were enthusiastic about everything going on. It was an electric environment, I believe. Thousands of people, all of them just been saved. And the Bible says that many more were being saved day by day. That's Acts 2.47, I believe. So this was, a, this, was a, this was an environment that was just full of life. You know, several years ago, when we took our girls down to college, and we got there for freshman orientation, and they called it Wow Week. It was a week of welcome. And so what you had was several hundred incoming freshmen that were about to begin a different portion of their life, an exciting part of their life. You know, that transition from high school to college is pretty, you know, it's pretty dynamic. And so here you have several hundred of these incoming freshmen, and they would have their parents and members of their family, and they're all gathered together in this huge area. And these kids are meeting kids from all over the country. They're meeting, in some cases, kids from other countries of the world. And, oh... It was amazing. It was amazing. It was just, there was a, it was a charged atmosphere in a good way. And if you take that, that enthusiasm for newness, and multiply it about by ten, and that's what you're going to see in the church that we're talking about here in the book of Acts. It had changed everything about them. It had changed the way they had looked at every part of their life. And so, keeping that in mind, if we go to verse 32, and if just the first part of it says this, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. This is an amazing statement. He said, basically what he's saying is they were bound together. They were bound together in the innermost parts of their body. Now, he could have said they were unified in mind. They were of one mind, and they looked at everything that way, and they could look at it at an academic perspective. But he didn't say it. He said they were one heart and soul. They were bound together in the innermost things. You know, you say one heart and soul, one heart and soul as opposed to one mind. You know, we can be academically connected to other people. You know, I can go down to Maverick, Station and and be filling my uh, my pickup up with gas and another guy there and he, and he would say you know I think gas is too expensive and I say yeah I agree with you what I don't do is I don't come home and tell Val hey I met this guy at the gas station who thinks that gas is too expensive I mean I feel so connected to him I get warm and fuzzies when I think about this guy we ought to have him over for dinner he and his family we don't do that. We can agree academically with people. We can agree on the facts. But what he's talking about is bound together heart and soul. The innermost parts of their being, what made them up, were bound together. And say they, they, they experienced a unity that was special. And we feel that today, don't we? We, we can feel that. 
We are united with believers. You know, the, the church that came together in the, in the book of Acts, people came from all different walks of life, all different sorts of trades and occupations and so on and so forth. What was the one thing that united them? It was their faith in Jesus. And so they were united from the soul for one purpose, for a singularity of purpose. Now, the fact that they were united does not mean that they were uniform. It was, doesn't mean that they were the same. You know, our Bible tells 1 Corinthians chapter 12 how it takes a look at the members of the church body and it compares them to parts of a human body and says, you know, one's a hand, one's a foot, one's an ear, one's an eye. None of those parts on me worked very good. But anyway, you know, but, but the analogy was this, is that, you know, how could we get along? If we didn't have arms, how could we get along if we didn't have eyes, if we didn't have ears? Every part of it is essential to the function of the body as a whole. And so this would be the same way as the young church. It would have people in it that varied in every sort of ability you can imagine, but they were united in purpose, and they were united from the heart and from the soul. You know, unity is what Jesus wanted in the church. In John chapter 17, where he is praying this, this great high priestly prayer before he would go to the cross, he said, he says, I pray that they would be one as we are one. How one is Jesus with the Father? Like this. And that's what, that's what we should be. And that's what the early church was, as was humanly possible. They were like this. They were united. Heart and soul. They had unity of purpose. You know, having unity and working together is what Christianity is all about. Christianity was never meant to be a solo sport. You know, like golf, for example. You know, you can go out on the 18th green... And you got a 12-foot putt to make par to win the tournament. There's nobody going to help you. Your coach can't help you. Your caddy can't help you. Your mama can't help you. And nobody can help you. You've got to put the stroke on the ball and get that ball in the hole. Christianity is never meant to be like that. Christianity was meant to be a team effort. We are to be, tonight, be united in purpose and work together for the common goal. It's more a team sport, which we would say is like football. And every member of a team is important. Um, I've been reading recently about a man many of you would be familiar with, Tony Dungy. Tony Dungy was a football player, later would go on to coach and would coach Super Bowl winning teams. And he got his start in coaching uh, coaching under a man by the name of Chuck Noel, who was a coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers during the time when the Pittsburgh Steelers won all the championships and so on. And he learned an amazing amount of things from Chuck Noel, but he says one of the most important things he learned from Chuck Noel was the importance of the 53rd man. The importance of the 53rd man. Well, a football team has 53 men on its roster. And what he was speaking of was that man. Maybe that man was undrafted. He, he's a walk-on off the street, you know, and he just barely made the team. And yet in Chuck Noel's eyes, 
that man was just as important as the one who was, who was in the starting lineup. The more name players, the ones that everybody heard of. And he would be coached, the, 53, the 53rd man would be coached with the same amount of effort and passion as the starters would be. And Tony Dungy learned that lesson, and he would apply that to the coaches he would later, to the teams he would later coach. Sorry. And so that's what Christianity is about. It's being united. It's being united from the heart and the soul. You know, a number of years ago, several years ago now, um, Pittsburgh Eagle, or sorry, Philadelphia Eagles assembled what would be known as the Dream Team. And what they did is they, you know, they managed to acquire star players from a various number of different teams. And everybody looked on paper and said, this team's going to the Super Bowl. Look at, you know, the running backs and the, you know, all this sort, all the different individuals. Guess what? They never made it. They never made it. The sum is more than the total of the parts. And so teams that work together then have maybe what would appear to be the same level of talent, but work together in unity of heart and soul where one team would accomplish great things. And this congregation of those who were believed were of one heart and one soul. So what does that look like? What does that translate to? Well, we're going to finish verse 32, and then we're going to skip over 33 and come back to it. And so we're going to go finish 32 and go to 34. And it says, Not one of them claimed anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Then verse 34. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. We go on in verse, in verse 36, he says, Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So, being united, being of one heart and one soul, how does that translate itself in action? How did it translate itself in action? It says here, you know, that they pooled the resources for the benefit of those that didn't have enough. And the first thing we need to make clear is when Luke says all and says every. He doesn't mean all and every. Because as you go on in the book of Acts, you'll see that people still had houses. They still had land and so on and so forth. What I believe Luke intended to say and intended to be understood as is that many did. Many did. And more importantly, maybe close to all or maybe all were willing to should it be necessary. And so they were selling, they would, they would dispose of property, and they would bring the proceeds, and they would give them to the apostles to distribute as they saw fit. It was kind of like a benevolence fund like we have here at Parkside, you know, once a month in the Communion Sunday, uh, you know, it's, there's this opportunity. We can collect a little bit and help out. Those who need help, both in the congregation and in the community. And so people will contribute to the Benevolence Fund, 
Well, this was kind of a benevolence fund on steroids. And people were selling property and bringing the proceeds and so on and so forth and then giving them to the apostles for distribution. Now, people have said that this passage in the Bible proves that the Bible endorses socialism or communism. No. No. In fact, they're reading things into it that aren't there. Why do I say that? Well, the main reason is is that this was entirely voluntary. If you wanted to sell your property and bring the money to the apostles, great. That's a wonderful thing. Go for it. Do it. But you weren't compelled to do it. It was strictly and completely voluntary as opposed to being forced or compulsory. So, each one of you here, within the next week or so, if you haven't done it already, is going to file a tax return. You're 1040. And, you know, you, you do all your calculations and you see what has already been withheld and so on and so forth, and you figure it all out or you're getting an accountant to do, and it says you owe $1,283. Okay. So here's what I'd like you to do if you think that this endorses socialism or communism somehow. Take a sticky note and write down on it there something to this effect. Like, you know, I've considered the way you have helped the needy in our country, and I think you're doing a terrible job at it. (laughs) And because of that, I think I can do a better job at it. And so instead of sending you $1,283, I'm going to send you $600, and I'm going to keep the rest, and I'm going to donate it to charities of my choice. Now, send that in and let me know how it works for you. (laughs) It's not going to work because what we have here is a quasi-socialism, and you can argue the politics and everything like that, but our system is not voluntary. It doesn't work that way. You are compelled, and you will send your taxes in, and the proceeds of that are going to be distributed as our lawmakers and the agencies see fit. And this was not the way it was in the early church. It was voluntary. They could bring if they felt like they wanted to. The nice thing about, one of the nice things about the way this was set up was this way, the way they did it. People who had that heart and mind to make these, these donations, what did they do? They, they liquidated some property, they got the money, and they gave it, to the, gave it to the apostles. And the way they gave is important. Because this would allow the donor the, the ability to be anonymous or close to being anonymous. Collect all this, and they could take that money and say, you know, distribute it as you have need, rather than making a huge fanfare about things and so on and so forth. And the apostles would be very familiar with what Jesus taught about giving. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, talks about that. You know, when you give, he says, don't do it to be noticed by men, says, for you have your reward in full. But when you do, give, you give it secretly so that your left hand does not know what your right hand is doing. And you will find favor and get your reward from God. 
And so these people would have the opportunity to donate. It wouldn't be perfectly anonymous. Most of the time we can't do it perfectly unknown. If we could set up a PayPal account or something that, where we could hide, you know, hide the identity and stuff, we could do a little better. But most, in most cases, somebody has to know. But the point is, the fewer people that know, the better. And God knows our heart. If we're doing it to be noticed by, by, by men, Jesus says, you got your reward. Whatever accolades that men give you, you got it. But if you give it in secret as much as possible, you will find favor with God. And so the way that you know, the people are going to sell this and they're going to bring it and lay it at the apostles' feet. And they're going to keep that quiet. They're going to, they're going to distribute that. And you know, say, a brother in the Lord came and donated money and here and now here, here you have clothes and food and stuff. They're not going to sell them the name. They would not do that. They kept it anonymous. And so... That's a, that's a great thing, a thing that, that we need to, need, need to um, consider in our own lives. And then finally, that verse 36, and to be honest with you, I don't know why it's here. I, I, I've read this, and I'm trying to figure out why Luke included it, but he did. And so it says, Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who also was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means sons of encouragement, who owned a tract of land and sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. The only thing that I can figure out that he wanted to point out here is the fact that, that Barnabas was a Levite, and as such, Levites couldn't own property in Israel. And so, evidently, but he was from Cyprus. And so the idea is, is that, that property owned must be in Cyprus. And so he sold that property and brought the proceeds to that. And why that's important, I can't really figure out, but it's there, and so that's all I can do. If you want me to do more with it, I can't. At any rate, but now we go, what else, what else was typical of this new church? Now we go back to verse 33, and it says, With great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. So if you remember a few weeks ago when Pastor Brennan was a little bit earlier in chapter 4, what happened? The apostles got in hot water for healing in Jesus' name, and they were reprimanded and given stern orders, you know, we're going to let you go, but don't do it again. Don't teach or preach in this man's name, in Jesus' name. So, naturally, what's the first thing you do? You go home and you share testimony of what, what Jesus' resurrection. Perfectly normal, right? That's what they did. They entirely ignored what they were told to do. How could they not speak as of what they had witnessed and seen? How could they keep quiet? Look what they had seen. Look what they had witnessed personally, up front. And so they did. And so they... They testified to everyone who would listen about the gospel message and about Jesus being risen from the dead. And as, as again, as our, as our Bible says in Acts chapter 2, that their number was being added to day by day. They were sharing their faith with whoever would listen, and many were being saved. 
See, by this time, they had quit counting. They had quit counting. And so the numbers, we don't know where they were there. There was, you know, the last figure I think we had was 3,000, but it was many more beyond that. They quit counting. It was being added to day by day. People were sharing their faith. The apostles were doing it, but that last part says, in abundant grace was upon them all. Other translation of the Bible reads that this way. It says, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. And so I read that to say that while, yes, the apostles were testifying about Jesus and all that they had seen and him being risen from the dead, it was not restricted to just the apostles. The rank and file were doing it as well. And you can imagine, again, all these people who had just been saved within the last couple months, and they're together, and are they sharing with each other and any who will listen what had happened to them, how their lives had been turned around, how they now looked at everything in a different way? I think it was just natural. That would be what they would do. And God blessed it, and his abundant grace was upon them all. So, as we close... There are three things I think that we need to really look at as far as this passage was concerned. One is unity within the church. Two is Christian charity. And three is evangelism. And so we as Christians should be one heart and one soul with one another. Right? And that's all well and good, as long as we all agree. What happens when we don't agree? What happens when I say, I have a way we should do something. And then you say, oh yes, but I have another way. Well, I know my way is best because it's my way, right? I mean, it's got to be best. It's got to be the best idea. But you don't see it that way. You don't think I'm as brilliant as I think I am. And you have your own idea. So what do we do then? Unity is easy when everybody agrees. What happens when we don't agree? And what needs to happen is to do, as Dale Young often would say, says we need to prefer the other over ourselves. And so what I need to do is I need to step back. And I said, you know, I got an idea. I think it's a good idea. I think it would work. But let's go with your idea. I think it's okay. Let's go with that. It'll be all right. That's the way we'll go ahead. You know, unity within the church is something that people outside the church notice. Or maybe when I say the lack of unity in the church is maybe what is noticed most by people outside the church. You know, the average person who is not a Christian and looks at us and where we've got lots of difficulties and we're squabbling and there's infighting, all this kind of stuff, their response is going to be something like this. Hey, i got enough drama in my life the way it is. Why in the world would I want to get involved with that? Can't blame them. Can't blame them. Our personal testimony 
as a Christian is on the line, and if we can't get along with one another, what good is our testimony? You know, John 13, 35 says, they will know they're my disciples by their love one for another. And love prefers the other over themselves. And so we have to be willing to step aside and say, hey, you know, it's okay. Do it your way. It's all right. We're going to make this work. It'll be okay. So that's an area. That's an area that we need to keep under consideration as we go forward. Secondly, Christian charity. What does that look like? The main thing is, as we looked at earlier, was it, is it must be voluntary. The Apostle Paul talked about Christian charity in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and he taught each must do as he has purposed in his own heart, not begrudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So if I got a bad attitude about something, I'd you know, say, I, yeah, I'm going I'm to give, but I don't, yeah, I shouldn't give i got to get my heart right first. I should give willingly. I should see that as an opportunity, not a burden. So, by the way, Christian charity is noticed by those outside the church, too. And so when we do a good job of taking care of each other and extending out further beyond that, People outside the church notice that too. And so that's important. That's an important part of our testimony. And the last one, and not the least in importance, but the last point is evangelism. And so under the threat of physical harm, the early church was couldn't help themselves, but had to share their faith, had to tell others about Jesus. When was the last time? Do we remember the last time that we shared our testimony as a believer? Do we remember that? And so what what do we do about that? I mean, we can't, we will never have the level of enthusiasm that that early church had. There's no way. You can't. Take thousands of people that just got saved and that everything is brand new. And you know how when something is brand new, it's just like, I just can't get enough of it. And great, let me... T- and so we will never have that. But I think we can have a little more enthusiasm than we currently have. I think that's possible. And I think that we can have unity if we prefer one another over ourselves. And I think we can excel at Christian charity, whether it is monetary or it's of your time, your ability to serve others and contribute to the welfare of the body of Christ is not just restricted to finances. It can be of your time, your willingness to help. And so and help one another out and show that love for one another. And finally, the only way people are going to know is if you tell them. And... If Christ has done a great work in your heart, others need to know that. Others should know that. And, and you know, why, why don't others know that in a greater sense? Why do we not say something? And, you know, it's fear of embarrassment, fear of, you know, being rejected or so on and so forth. Any number of, of reasons we might say that. But... Um, we don't fear for our 
physical well-being as our pastor, friend in Turkey, or the apostles and the Christians in the early church did. They they had reason to fear for their physical well-being. We don't have that. We don't have to worry about that. So, keep these things in mind. And as we go forward, you know, say, hey, I'm going to make, I will prefer others to myself. I will be mindful of Christian charity and what that looks like. And I will share my testimony to those around me. So, let's pray and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we're grateful now for this passage. We're grateful for how you showed us how important it is to be one with one another, to be united in one heart and one soul. And we pray for each one of us here, including myself, maybe most importantly myself, that, uh, that I would not just talk about it, but I would live it. And so uh, thank you again for this reminder. Uh, we pray your blessing now uh, on each of us today, uh, particularly for those families that are struggling again with, with, uh, with such serious situations. We pray you'd be close to them and uh, that they would know and feel your love, that others around would see that as well. And, and that uh, people would be drawn uh, to believe in Jesus as he is our hope. And so now we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.